Welcome to The Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This radio program is a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible. And on today's edition of The Word for Today, Pastor Chuck continues with God's covenant as we pick up in Genesis chapter 9, verse 8. And now with today's message, here's Pastor Chuck. Now, if the first covenant was adequate and sufficient, there would have never been need for a new covenant. But even Jeremiah, who lived under the old covenant, saw that it was not and could not work because of man's continued disobedience and unfaithfulness. So God established a new covenant not predicated upon man's faithfulness, but predicated now upon God's faithfulness. So we have a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ that is based upon the faithfulness of God of putting away my sins if I'll just simply believe and trust in His Son. Now the old covenant based upon man's faithfulness to keep the law failed because man didn't keep the law. Because it was predicated upon man, man's faithfulness failed. Thus the new covenant cannot fail because God cannot fail and is predicated upon God's faithfulness, who is faithful and who will keep his promise and will keep his covenant that he has made with us through Jesus Christ. But this is the beginning, really, of the covenant relationships with God and man. And God established this covenant with Noah after he came out from the ark. And God in this covenant declared that neither shall all flesh be cut off anymore by the waters of a flood, neither shall there be any more a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the token of my covenant, the sign which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. For I will set my bow in the cloud, And it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature and of all flesh. And the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it that I... may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. And so the rainbow. Prior to the flood, there had never been a rainbow because there had never been a rain. But now God has set a rainbow, that beautiful Rainbow in the clouds caused by the prisms, water, raindrops, the sun hitting them. But they are God's covenant to man that the earth will never again be totally destroyed. Now, it isn't a promise that there would not be localized floods. For there are localized floods, but the earth itself will never be destroyed by a great deluge, by a great flood the entire earth and all flesh. And that is God's promise. The rainbow is the sign of God's promise that the earth will not again 
be destroyed by a flood. The earth is to be destroyed, but not by a flood, by a dissolving of the atoms, actually, described by Peter. Now, it is interesting that when John sees the throne of God, there is a rainbow about the throne of God, or a bow about the throne of God, like unto an emerald. So there in heaven, about the throne of God, is again a bow which speaks of God's covenant that he has made with man, a reminder of God's covenant. Uh, of course, that one in heaven is probably a reminder of that new covenant that is ours through Jesus Christ, because we will be standing there with God on the basis of this covenant relation that he's established through Jesus. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem, Ham, Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. Now, it's, that's just thrown in. Canaan wasn't his first son. He was probably his, his fourth or fifth son. Uh, but it, it's just thrown in because he was actually Ham's youngest son. But uh, he is going to, for some reason or other, come under a curse of Noah. And so it is mentioned, the, the relationship here, Canaan is brought in as Ham's son. Now these are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth populated. And Noah began to be a husbandman. That is, he uh, planted a vineyard and uh, began to till the soil. And he drank of the wine and was drunken. And he was uncovered within his tent. Now, there are some people that try to excuse Noah and say, well, prior to the flood, there was, wasn't any fermentation. And so Noah uh, was sort of taken by surprise. But there is nothing scientifically at all that would cause us to believe that the conditions were any different prior to the flood as after the flood or that any of the atmospheric conditions after the flood would have caused uh, a fermentation. That's only speculation. We don't know for sure. Um, at any rate, Noah got drunk and was lying uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brethren without. Now, the word saw the nakedness of his father is a little more intense in the Hebrew. Actually, he was gazing upon, and the whole undertone of the thing is that he was in rebellion against his father. And he more or less delighted to see his father in this condition and went out and told his two brothers in such a way as to bring a reproach and disrespect upon his father Noah. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both of their shoulders, and they went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness, the respect for him. And Noah awoke from his wine, and he knew what the younger son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. Now notice he didn't say, Cursed be Ham, 
But he goes down to this youngest son of Ham and said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Now, why would Noah curse Canaan? when it was actually Ham who did it. Much of prophecy, which this is a prophecy, is predicated upon observation of human characteristics and just knowing what the ultimate effect of that kind of a characteristic will bring. You can look at people with certain basic human characteristics and you can more or less tell what's going to happen to their lives. There are little kids as they're growing up, you say, man, he's, he's you know, going to come to no good in his life. You can tell by their reactions to authority, by their attitudes and all, that hey, they're going to get in trouble. They have a rebellious attitude towards authority. And you can, you can pick out characteristics, and by the characteristics that are there, you can more or less make a determination of what their future holds. And Noah, no doubt, had observed in Canaan many of the characteristics of his father, by which he knew that these characteristics would lead to this kind of a future. Now, it is totally unscriptural, totally unfounded, that weird interpretation of the scripture that was held by many people for so long that the curse was that Canaan became black and thus that the black people were a subservient race. Now, this was held by the Mormons until recently. A Mormon could not, a, a black man could not become a priest in the Mormon church. And it was a common view, a tragic view, an unscriptural view. It was an unscriptural, tragic interpretation. There's no basis for that at all. God has created all of us equal. And the color of my skin has nothing to do with the character and the condition of my heart nor does it make me any closer to God or any farther from God, nor does it categorize me to a certain destiny because my skin is white and I have no hair. <laughs> that is a tragic interpretation of the scriptures that caused a great deal of horrible attitudes towards a race of people. 
treating them as servants, as subpar. I am so grateful that that ridiculous interpretation has finally been filed away and that we've come to the beautiful realization that, hey, we are all brothers. And in Christ Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Greek, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, because of this attitude, unfortunately, among many black people, there has become a attitude of sort of a backlash against the church, against Jesus Christ, and against Christianity because it was sort of held in Christian circles, these concepts for a time. And, and that is tragic indeed because it is holding back then a great number of these people from knowing the love of God and the power of God's Spirit and being able to change their lives and give them love and the joy and the peace that God would have for them. There are many things in history and many things in the history of the church for which I am greatly ashamed. I do not try to defend church history. I cannot understand why some people seem to love to hold up the historic church as the criteria for doctrinal truth, as though the historic church was so correct. The historic church is an abomination. Their concepts were an abomination to God. Their practices, their introduction of pagan idolatry, all of these things are a part and a parcel of the historic church. That is why I am glad that, as for myself, I am not identified with the historic church we can start all over afresh and just seek for the true scriptural patterns without having to be bound or restricted or identified with the mistakes and the evils of the historic church. It's neat to have a fresh start. Thus, when I look at the historic church, I blush with shame. I don't try to defend it. It was wrong. It was wrong in its treatment of the Jew. It was wrong in its treatment of those people who have darker colored skin. It was wrong in its introduction of idolatry. It was wrong in its introduction of the Babylonian system of religion. It was wrong in so many areas of the interpretation of the Scriptures. So why should I reject the glorious, blessed hope of the rapture of the church just because it wasn't a part of the historic church teaching? There is a lot of the historic church teaching that I reject totally. 
as being false and unscriptural. So the fact that the historic church did not teach the rapture doesn't affect my believing one iota. There's a lot of things that they didn't teach or practice that I do believe and I believe in, such as the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the believers, which is not a part of the historic church, if you want to get technical. So to me, these guys who are arguing all the time against the rapture and using as their chief tenant well, it isn't a part of the historic church doctrine. Well, if you want to follow historic church doctrine, that's your problem. I'm glad to take a fresh look. I'm glad to come at the scriptures without presuppositions. I'm glad to just let the word of God speak to me and speak to my own heart directly and plainly and openly without coming with the presuppositions that would prejudice my interpretations. I'm glad for the chance to start over fresh. I'm glad for the new wine skins to hold the new wine of God's spirit that he is seeking to pour out in these days. I'm glad that we're not bound in traditions of the past. God help us to keep from developing our own traditions. God keep us in a free flow God keep us flexible. God keep us open so that the skins don't get hard and tight and rigid. And should the Lord tarry and I sleep with my fathers and the day should come when someone sees a need within the church and they suggest a new way to reach out and touch lives. And if someone says, well, Chuck didn't do it that way, I'll tell you, I'm going to be breathing over your shoulder, haunting you. <laughs> because we're not trying to establish ways. We're only seeking to follow the movement of God's Spirit in these days. Let's stay flexible. Let's stay open. God is working in a beautiful way now, and we love it, and we rejoice in it. But it doesn't mean that we will always be following the same patterns of worship that we are presently. But we just want to be open to however God leads and to remain open. So the curse was passed upon Canaan, and Canaan actually was the father of those nations that established the land of Canaan. The Amorites, the Jebusites, and so forth, those who established in the land that became known as the land of Canaan, which land later Abraham came to and was given as God's promise to Abraham and to his seed. So Canaan actually was the father of those people and not the black African races, though the African continent was populated by the other descendants of Ham. 
And so Noah lived after the flood 350 years, which means that he lived almost to the time of Abraham. And his son Seth did live contemporary. In fact, Seth lived for 75 years after he lived almost as long as, as Abraham did, really. He lived for 75 years after uh, Abraham had left uh, Haran. So uh, it means that he, he lived just about contemporaneously with Abraham himself. So you see that you're really not far removed, as far as the story goes, from Adam. For Adam lived unto the time of Noah's father and so could have passed on the story of creation, the garden and all, to Noah's father. Noah himself passing it on to Shem, his son, who lived to the time of Abraham and related the whole thing to Abraham. So you don't have the story too far removed from Abraham. return with more of our verse-by-verse Bible study in the book of Genesis on our next broadcast, as Pastor Chuck continues to teach through the Bible, and we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Genesis 9 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, be sure to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, that's the wordfortoday.org. For those of you wishing to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD, and our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of the Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure to join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. May the Lord enrich you in all good things in Christ Jesus. And may the Lord continue his work in your life as he draws you unto himself, as he fits you and prepares you for that work that he would have you to do. God bless you. God strengthen you and keep you ever in his love and in his will. In Jesus' name. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. It is my great pleasure to present Pastor Chuck's commentary on the book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles is an open-ended book. Jesus continues even to the present day to work in the lives of people throughout the world through those who have been empowered by the Holy Spirit. This book also includes a special foreword written by Pastor John Corson. We studied the book of Acts, but we never saw the book of Acts. But we were seeing the moving of the Holy Spirit. 
Calvary Chapel family. May you always be known as a people who pray in Jesus' name, that it would be Jesus Christ, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. May the Jesus movement continue on. To order a copy of Pastor Chuck's book, The Acts Commentary, please call the word for today at 1-800-272-9673 or visit us online to read a sneak preview of the book by visiting thewordfortoday.org.